Today's guest on Leave Your Mark is Joey Del Sarda. He's a Pittsburgh native. He's a standout football and basketball star at Seton LaSalle High School. And seeking a scholarship, he chose to be a walk-on at the University of Pittsburgh where he makes the team. And he is a three-year letterman and he's a wide-out standout and he's known for his great hands and pass routes. He's also known for his highlight reel on top 10 plays on ESPN. And during this time of Joey's life, he's on top of the world and his dream life comes to a crashing battle with drug addiction. Hi there and welcome. Now it's time for America's favorite podcast. Leave your mark with your host, Vince Cortez. If it's fly, loose fit it. It's Cortez. If freeze and chubbies in it. It's Cortez. Leave your mark. It's about inspiring the world. One guess at a time. Pass the word from Brooklyn to Pittsburgh, from urban to suburb. It's Cortez, you heard? And here is our host, Vince Cortez. I want to thank you for being here today, Joey. And if you would, please take me from the point of when you were injured in high school. Yes. Thanks for having me on, Vinny. I'm glad uh, a couple of Pisons could get together. And, yeah, it's always yeah. good. There's going to be a lot of sauce here today. Joey, <laughs> Vinny, it's going on. Going back to high school, you know, I was never one that was into the drug scene or the party scene in high school. I didn't really drink alcohol, let alone anything else, you know. And going into my senior year, I'm smaller, so I was having to fight for a scholarship. I was never getting really any offers early on. And I got hurt my senior year. And, you know, my thought process at that point was kind of just like, how you got to play, you know, you need to perform for these coaches and earn a scholarship. So my mentality was I need to get on the field. I didn't know much about any of the painkillers that were on the scene at the time. I just knew a friend of mine was injured. That's what he took when he was playing because he had surgery. And my thought was, hey, I'll take one of those and I'll play in the game next week. So that's what I did. And unfortunately, you know, I went in for one play and I got re-injured. Oh, wow. Um, and I was back on the sidelines. So probably would have been worth it to just sit out as opposed to, to go that extra mile for you just one play. Now, in this situation, <laughs> you had taken the medication for the pain and you experienced what the medication felt like for the first time. So could you explain a little bit about that? Yes, I can remember sitting there kind of kind of nervous, not in the sense that it was like, hey, I know what this may bring. It was more just a sense like, you know, I'm doing something to, to play in this game. And in my life, football was, was everything, right? And mm -hmm. just like so many others, it's, it means the world to you. And all you want to do is strap it up on Friday night, right? That was my mentality. Even if college or the pros wasn't my end goal, which it was, but I still feel the same way because you only get so many Fridays you can play. So I had a little bit of nerves just to go through the process. I didn't really ever take anything except for Tylenol before, which it was very similar. I just took a couple of pills, took a drink of water. And um, during warmups, I started to feel like just loose and more talkative and not really myself. I guess coming out of your shell a little bit, you could say, and you weren't necessarily thinking about what you were saying. Maybe you just felt like I didn't have a filter. Okay. Uh, and I can remember pacing the sidelines, begging the offensive coordinator to put me in, put me in, put me in. You know, looking back at it now, I kind of probably freaked him out a little bit and some of the coaches that how aggressive I was being to get in the game. And I go in the game for one play at the end of the second half and, you know, guy on my own team 
runs into me and bang my ankle and I'm out again. And I took a couple more pills and I remember not acting like myself. So then the feeling of the medication was what gripped you almost immediately then. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. It was nothing that was, I need this every day type of thing, obviously at that point after the first time, but it was like, you know, I like this. I like this feeling. Mm, Dangerous. Extremely dangerous. And especially for someone like me or maybe athletes in general who are a lot of alphas who just are, I need this, I want this, and I'm going to go after it, I'm going to get it. So I took it and originally it was, if you want to say for the right reasons, I was just wanting to play and I took them before games. And then you keep getting that feeling and because I was never the type, once I found out it was addictive, I would always say, you know, there's a limit. I'll have a limit. I'm just going to do it for games or practices. Uh Uh-huh. You felt like you could control it. Exactly. And then you do that. And then that baseline or that, I guess, guideline and parameter starts to expand. Now, you're still in high school at this point when you were introduced to this. Now, your high school year obviously goes well of the mindset where you won that scholarship. You're trying to be a standout on, you know, statistically with your play, however you can attract that attention. And you decide to go and be a walk on a pit. So, I mean, this part of the story gets very interesting because you experience uh, success. You make the team while you kind of got this skeleton in your closet going on. Well, leading up to that, going through my senior year, and when we got into the playoffs of senior year of high school is when I was first introduced to heroin. Oh, wow. Now you're on a whole nother thing. It was a whole nother level. I think at this point, I started to justify it in my mind. Again, I saw a couple guys using it, and I said no. This is for a few weeks now. And I was always like, I don't want to really associate myself with that drug. I don't want my name and that in the same sentence. I always said no. And then one week, I was just like, you know, I just want to see what it feels like. Because so many people said, well, it's like painkillers just magnified a little bit. So I said, I'll try it once just to see what it's like. I did it that one time and obviously continued to do it throughout the rest of my senior year, sporadically, I would say. But I mean, before the state championship game where I was able to set a record for receptions, I was up till four in the morning, partly because I couldn't sleep because of nerves. I was doing mixing pills. I was doing heroin. So you would begin to mix the drugs? The night before the game. And I was kind of up all night with paranoia. I think nervous of the game. I'd fall asleep. I'd have some type of weird dream or something and I'd wake up. uh, You know, I just couldn't sleep. And then going into my freshman year as a walk-on, I actually was like, listen, I need to start focusing. And I put those drugs down and I was just like, I'm back into football. I'm going to college. My goal is to play. My goal is to start and get a scholarship. But I wasn't really seeking it out. Yeah, actually, based on how that affected you, you showed an incredible amount of strength to be able to back off of that at that point. When the drugs hit like that, it's kind of like a spiral effect. Mm -hmm. And for you to have the strength to say, you know, this isn't me or your identity still didn't match with what you were doing to put yourself back on track in the moment. That's impressive. That showed signs of being able to have strength later on. Yeah. I mean, it was difficult. Funny, not funny, but I guess odd thing is I never really knew about withdrawal. And I would kind of go on and off. It was maybe you do it one week more than you do it the next week. And then somebody asked me if I got withdrawal. And I said, no, I never even know what that is. And then I was going on a recruiting visit in a a smaller school in Tennessee. And that night before I couldn't sleep, I hadn't taken anything. And I was like starting to ache and feel sick. And I was like, wow, this must be withdrawal. 
in my head, I'm thinking, man, if I just didn't know what this was, maybe I never would have gone through it. But someone brought it to my attention. And then like two days later, that's how I felt. Yeah, fortunately, I guess I was able to, to go and, and just kind of put it to the side while I was early on at Pitt and focus on just playing football. Now, just share a little bit with me about Pitt because uh, I was a high school athlete in that same situation as yourself where everything's about getting on the floor. I played basketball and you want that scholarship so bad that you become consumed by that. To come from that point to make the team, I mean, you know, you, you didn't go on a lower level. You're a pit. You're at Division One level, the highest level of college play. Making the team in the situation that most probably didn't know that you were in, it was almost like your own little secret you had going on. And uh, you come out, you become a starter. You're known for your athleticism and your play. Your leadership from your high school carries over. We're watching you on ESPN. I mean, yeah. you hit the mountaintop. Yeah, it was um, it was kind of surreal, but almost expected in a way. Despite what I had done my senior year, I still worked extremely hard. You know, I was able to go down and watch practices as a senior once I knew I was going to go to Pitt so that I could try and learn the offense. My quarterback throughout college, Tyler Palco, who's a Pittsburgh kid, would call me down that summer when I was just graduated high school and most of the time at that point, it's scholarship guys, but I was a local walk-on. So he would call me and I would throw with him, which was a benefit to get just extra reps. Um, well, and your timing. I mean, he's the starting quarterback. That was what it was going to be like game time. That was actually a great reach out that Tyler did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Tyler worked extremely hard, too. And he was in a similar boat in the sense that there were two quarterbacks coming in, both from Pittsburgh, same year. And there was a guy who was a senior. My freshman year, Rod Rutherford was a senior. That's when Larry Fitzgerald was there. And then it was kind of known that once Rod leaves, Tyler and Luke are going to kind of battle it out. So that's the way he was. And not a lot of people remember that Joe Flacco was part of that mix too. Yeah. Didn't he transfer? Yeah, he transferred to Delaware. Wow. Um, That's a nice little inside story. No, a lot of people don't know that. No. At least they don't remember. But yeah, I mean, I came in too. I was like 208 pounds. You know, immediately when I came into camp, coach was like, you need, you need to drop about 20 pounds. Oh, wow. He wanted you to get thinner, lighter yeah. and faster. Yes. So yeah, I came in and I was a walk on and I knew I just needed to do something. So I went to the special teams coach and I said, listen, I'll play whatever you want me to play on special teams. Just give me an opportunity. Even though I came in as a wide receiver, I was also recruited for some time at linebacker and safety. So I was like, I just want to get on the field. And I made the coaching staff aware of that. And I was able to start on some special teams as a freshman. So you kind of get through that your freshman year on a special teams level. And it's like, okay, well, I can do this. Even though I was out there trying to block linebackers and tight ends, I did what I could. Now, what you were saying, that that worked out. You kind of broke through, and now you come into your sophomore year, and it sounds like the next level of success began. When I go out and I speak, I talk about my process of going through PIP. Going into my sophomore year, you know, I lost all this weight. I dropped down to like 184, 183, my spring of freshman year. Coaches were telling me, hey, listen, if you're like one of the top guys in spring ball, you'll get a scholarship going into next year. One of our starting receivers from last year was going to be out for the season. I was the leading receiver in the spring game. I had most catches. I had like a reverse for 33 yards and a touchdown. Oh, nice. So like the next week, 
Coach Harris calls me in. I'm getting ready. I was staying at home at the time. I pop up. I drive down to Southside. I'm like, this is it. This is it. And he just rips me a new one for blocking assignments. Like, hey, when we're running the ball, you blocked the wrong guy 30% of the time or whatever, you know, the number. <laughs> not, not what you were expecting to happen. It laid, laid into me. And I'm like, man, I, I thought I did pretty good. It really helped me because that opened my eyes to – Hey, this position entails more than just catching and, and uh, running. Yeah, and running. There's a lot more, and you really have to pay attention to those details. So then he announced that I was getting a scholarship, and then he said my name, and I was just like, "What?" I ran inside. I called my parents up. I was, you know, in tears because they were at my high school's Friday night football game. It was just an amazing feeling. Yeah, I mean, that was an achieved goal. You had arrived officially. Goal completed. Yeah. So now you play how many games then as a starter your sophomore year and a scholarship athlete? 12 games. Wow. We went eight and four that year. We won the Big East. It was a three-way tie between us, West Virginia, and Boston College. And then Syracuse had to beat Boston College for us to win and go to the Fiesta Bowl. So you so went to the Fiesta Bowl too then? Yeah. Going to a bowl game in college is like going to a Super Bowl. I mean, you guys get treated like kings. Well, I'll say the BCS games are like going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. If you have a story to share, tell us. How are you going to leave your mark? Contact us. Leave your mark with our host, Vince Cortez. Be our guest. So you go now into your junior and senior year. How are you doing with your addiction with the drugs? So I was doing much better. I didn't realize it at the time. I was, I guess, kind of naive to the fact. I thought, one, I'd proven myself that I could be a starter at this league. And it's like the difference, I guess, was the old coaching staff was like, I'm going to trust this guy to do what he's going to do and catch the ball. Where the second coaching staff was more maybe looking at potential of what they can do. So throughout camp, I didn't really realize it, but they were trying to replace me. So by week one, you know, I still beat everybody out. We played Notre Dame. I had a pretty good game. I think four or five catches for 80 yards, something like that. Second game, we lose in overtime to Ohio University. And at that point, they were like, hey, you're going to be like the third wide receiver. You're not starting in our two wide receiver sets. And that's where I kind of took it hard, started dabbling back into drugs throughout my junior year. And I just dealt with it in the wrong way. I think part of it was feeling ashamed feel like I let myself down. I let my family down. At that point, you just want to kill the pain. Being in my hometown, I think, took a little bit of a toll on me as well, because a lot of the people who would cover us in sports, I've known just from high school and being around. It was difficult. It was a difficult thing doing that or having to go through that. Now you're coming into your senior year. How did things begin to play out? So you slip back into the drug addiction. Where was your mind at as far as you're going to graduate soon? You got to play more than you thought in some cases and less than you thought in others. And yeah. So you're sort of almost in no man's land. Yeah. We had the same coaching staff, obviously, going into my senior year. I was still going through this drug addiction. I was still having to you know, find these pills and going through it. Maybe I wasn't at my peak worst, but still going through it, but my mindset at this point was totally different from my junior year. I was optimistic about my senior year. It was my last year of football. I was just thinking, I'm going to go into this. I'm going to give everything I got. That's all I could do at that point. 
So you recommitted. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to, as soon as a guy would catch a hitch on the other side of the field, I was trying to run over and get a block. Just, you know, doing everything I could. But mm-hmm. it just felt like I, I wasn't in their plans. Even though I was at the time in, like, the mix of the top two or three receivers, I still didn't feel a part of what the plan was. That's difficult, too. Because, I mean, I experienced that myself. In my sophomore going into my junior year, the coach that had recruited me was gone. And when the new coach comes in, as you just mentioned, when you're not in the plans, you feel like you're just going through the motions. It's very difficult mentally to feel like you can contribute. Yeah. You are listening to Leave Your Mark with your host, Vince Cortez. Leave Your Mark. Inspiring the world, one guess at a time. Now, at what point in your senior year, had a few games started? or This was still camp. And, oh, uh, wow. We had a young receiving group. I don't want it to seem like either that I'm saying I felt like I was shafted or one of those guys that's like, (laughs) coaches didn't like me. You know, I I don't want to sound like that. Maybe we had 12 guys in the room, 10 receivers in the room. I was probably at the bottom of the list when it comes to athleticism. I mean, we had some stud athletes on our receiving core. From an athletic standpoint, I think I'm pretty athletic, and I was probably closer to the bottom of the list than I was at the top. However, I knew my assignments, and I was going to catch the ball. I do think we're wrong. I'll say that. I think I was wrongfully suspended my senior year. Didn't work out as planned. Like I said, I I went through a couple suspensions that really made me mad. Nothing I could do about it. It was kind of all she wrote for my football career. You went on to graduate? I did finish my senior year. So after my senior season, that's when my addiction was at its worst, like that spring semester as a senior. And I think I withdrew from most of my classes that year. It was bad going to class and then you get sick and somebody calls you that has pills and you just leave and turn around and go meet them. It was bad. That was the worst I had ever been. Now, this sounds like at this point, then it has a potential to pick up because it's kind of funny when you're an athlete and your mission is completed, it's difficult to get the next mission. In your case, college is over, football's over, and the next mission is life. Yeah. It's reality check time. You know, the big leagues are about to start. I went to summer school and in the middle of summer school is when I decided I, I was going to treatment. I went into treatment June 22nd of 2007. That was obviously the best thing that ever happened to me. I took a semester off that fall, and then I finished, went spring and summer, and finished summer of 2008 to get my degree. Yeah, I was fortunate to go to rehab the time I did and not dig myself in too much of a hole and was able to graduate. Well, you pull it together. So what's going on here then with the friendships and the people who are being your, uh, your suppliers? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people say maybe I wouldn't have gotten into this if I was, uh, went to, away to school because a lot of the people that dealers, suppliers, whatever you want to call it, were people from my high school. As I got worse into it, I then got into just random cell phone numbers I would have and I would go into project area of Pittsburgh and meet whoever. And when I went into treatment, I had a cell phone number and my parents took my cell phone and they changed it. I just had a random couple of numbers, my family members. But the last thing I wanted when I got out was to get a phone call from somebody that I didn't want to get a phone call from and me be at a vulnerable time 
in a difficult time throughout my recovery. And then somebody called me and said, Hey, I have this. And now I have maybe a couple bucks in my pocket and I can go get it. Okay. Now you uh, reference that you actually had a tipping point moment. Can you share with us what kind of rocked your world and, and sent you in the direction of not doing this anymore? Yeah. So, um, it's kind of odd how you meet different people throughout this world. I guess it's kind of like networking with business. You know what I mean? Like, so I got this number from a kid who he wrote it down in a notebook in my car and I just called this cell phone number. I was desperate one day. I called it and there was a, like a projects area up by Kennywood that I drove up to and I was walking back there one day and I saw a guy open the door. So I assumed that's who I was meeting. And as I got closer to the door, you know, he pulled a gun and eventually you know, had the gun in my mouth and was like, what are you, what are you doing here? And at that point I was like, obviously this is the wrong guy. I think he figured out, like I didn't pose a threat. I was terrified. I just put my hands up and I backed up as slow as I could. And I ran further into the project so I could at least meet my dealer before I, you know. <laughs> that actually in the moment it still didn't deter you. You were still looking for your fix. No, I mean, I think you, at that point you're just like so sick and you're just so desperate and you're that close to getting rid of the sickness, you're like, I'm right here. I don't want to go back and call and go through this whole process of finding something. Wow. So yeah, I met that guy real quick and I, I just ran back to my car and I can remember I was driving home. I actually went into the back seat, kneeled down, but I was like curled up in my back seat and I just started praying. You know, I was like, God, just please give me the strength to quit. Cause I knew at that point, if it could have been, you know, very soon that I end up dead if I don't quit. This that is amazing. Was, that was my plea. And that was, I just, every day. Now, so you begin to wean off or, I mean, this is definitely the moment of which, you know, if you're fearing for your life, it's not going to get any worse than that. You did have the strength before. Explain to us how you began to take steps to where you currently are. It kind of kick-started everything into gear that day. And I did. I started to say, I'm like, I can't live this life. I don't want to go into places I don't know with people I don't meet. Let me just try and wean myself off. So if I was doing whatever, say it was 160 milligrams a day, let me try doing 120. That's going to help me. And then now I'm just going to do 80. And then I tried to get it down to a point where I was doing 40 milligrams. During all this, it probably was like almost a month long process. One of my friends from high school who was actually gave me that first pill was given dropping off a pill at my house. And it was a pill that actually helps with withdrawal. It's called Suboxone. He actually was supposed to put it in my car and he tried to put it in my brother's car and my brother's car was locked. And my neighbor is a cop and he saw this whole interaction and he got his license plate, you know, how found out who the car was registered to. And then I came out and he was like, do you know so-and-so? And I was like, yeah. At that point, I just came clean to the cop and was like, listen, I'm not going to answer any questions. Like, this guy's not a drug dealer. I got a problem and I need help. So we started talking and he was like, you know, this is going to be tough, but you're strong. Like, I've seen what you did. I know you're strong enough to do it. And that really stuck with me. And then I asked him the big question, like, you know, which was kind of inevitable. But I was like, do we have to tell my parents about this? Oh, wow. And he was like, yeah. So walking inside of my house and admitting it to my parents was probably the most difficult thing I had to do. Everybody was, was kind of crying. And, um, you know, my mom, obviously knowing me so well, 
had been researching rehabs. And the next day I had an evaluation at a treatment center and then I got in and went to treatment. This is, so your mother sounded like she actually had an idea that something was going on. Oh yeah. I mean, she knew and she would try to catch me in the act, but just couldn't. And you go through the, everybody knows, but I'm just in denial and I'm going to deny everything until the end. It's just the way addicts work, you know? The, well, and you also still think you have the control. I can still handle this because I, I think a lot of addicts have this idea that they can still be functional and still do their drugs. And, and it's just like a, a horrible trick that they play on themselves. Yeah. You go into rehab, take me through how rehab plays out. Cause I mean, your story as this thing winds up, what seems to be tragic and life threatening where you lined your life up now. I mean, yeah. and how many years removed are we from this? Yeah. So, well, so I went to rehab June 25th, 2007 and no drugs, no alcohol since then. Congratulations on that. This past June was 13 years. That's awesome. Thank you. I always say about treatment, it was the best thing I experienced that I never want to experience again. If you are listening from Australia, Florida, or just from around the corner. From East Coast to West Coast outlets, if you're not into the dirty South straight, make a left body body. Contact us. Leave your mark with your host, Vince Cortez. You find out so much about yourself. You're in such a vulnerable place because you feel all these different emotions that you haven't felt in so long. For me, it was like five years. For some, it could be 25, 30, 40 years of active addiction before they feel different emotions. It's emotional, you know? Yeah. Like they didn't give us Suboxone when I was in treatment. Like if you had nausea, they'd give you something for that. If you had shakes or chills, they'd give you something for that. So I would write a lot. I felt a lot of guilt. I felt a lot of shame. You know, my mom and my cousin came out to visit me the first week. They could see me. They came for about five minutes and I was just like, I can't, I can't. Like, I can't see you guys. And I asked them to leave. I just felt so bad and I felt so guilty. One thing about me, as you know, like Italians, we're all close. Like I have, there's 17 first cousins in my family. Oh yeah. We all grew up about three, four minutes away from each other. We would meet for Sunday dinner and breakfast every week growing up. It was a Sunday night and I called my whole family up. There was about 30 people and then boyfriends, girlfriends were part of it. But I just said, fighting back tears and everyone's sitting there and I just said, hey, listen, I've been battling with something for the last five years. I want to let you guys know that on Tuesday I'm going to treatment. It was, it was so funny. It was like so my family, but it's like we would all go to each other's games. <laughs> they just stand up and start clapping like, you know, I just scored a, the game winning like touchdown. It was maybe the biggest score of your life, actually. Treatment itself was scary. I walked into this room not knowing anyone, and I put a hood up on my head, and I walk into this room of 60 people, and immediately somebody says, take your hood off. And I'm like, "Uh, shoot. Um, (laughs) Here it goes. Here it comes. You thought it was going to be bad in front of your family. You had a whole other surprise coming. And I'm thinking, like, man, this is a bunch of people who are doing – drugs before like someone walks into the hood up it's nobody's gonna care I just wanted to kind of like hide you start to learn responsibility so everybody has a job at the treatment facility you could work the kitchen serving food do garbage which was my first job my next job was I was like I'm assuming it's still similar they take away your cell phones and whatnot but there's pay phones 
So my second job was I, you know, timed people in and out for phone calls. And then you have people trying, let, let me get five extra minutes. So yeah, you learn responsibility. You learn how to just do your job and just learn about addiction and ways to cope with it and ways to stay clean. And then they told us towards my last day or so, they were given statistics of this, is how many of you will stay clean for six months and 10% of you will stay clean for 18 months. And then one of you out of 60 will stay clean for five years or more. And I was just like, the athletic athlete mentality came out of me and was like, that's going to be me. Well, you had a new mission. Yeah. That was perfect for you. It matched your personality and what you knew you were capable of doing. Yeah. And that's, that's just the way I took it. You know, we talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago, you and I, and I said, I don't know what anybody else has done, but I know what I've done. And it's been 13 years and I've had, you know, knock on wood, no slip ups. And that's the way I continue to do it. It literally is one day at a time. I could say, hey, I'm going to be clean for the next 10 years, but I don't know that. Well, your reality of that is what's going to help pull you through. You understand the detail part of it and the one-day-at-time approach. That's where you build the strength and your momentum. This has been awesome, Joey. I really appreciate you coming and sharing this with me. Kind of give us where you currently are. What's going on in your life now? What's become of you here? We're 13 years later. Yeah, so I work now. I do sales. I'm married since April 30th of 2016, so like two and a half years Four and a half years now. Four and a half. Well, you're going to get in trouble for that one. (laughs) Um, I have two kids. I have a daughter who's turned three in April, a daughter who turned two in June. And my younger daughter was actually born on my clean dates, June 25th. Yes, she's a special one then. That's, you know, God giving you your just due. He's speaking to you in another level there. That's right. That's maybe why she's so bad right now. (laughs) She's like your dad? (laughs) Is she like you? My gosh, I don't know who she's like, but she is pistol. And you know, it's funny as she's bad, but I think she does it just to get a rise out of people. So I guess she is kind of like me because we're Italian. We bust balls. That's just yeah, yeah, that's what that's, we do. That's what, it, that's what we do. Yeah, that's right. I see it gets to somebody. I just do it a little more just to get a rise out of them. And that's what she does. Like she knows what she's supposed to do and not supposed to do. And she's such a sweetheart. Oh, that's hilarious. You did want to share with me that you do speaking, and I wanted you to kind of touch on that, too. Yeah, yeah. And give it back forward here. Yeah. Probably when I was around three and a half for four years clean, teammate of mine, Yogi's his name, he wrote a book, and, and he had a book signing in Pittsburgh. He'd always say, tell your story, tell your story. And I was always kind of hesitant, I guess, just to go out and share your imperfections and your mistakes with the world, right? And also, too, I didn't feel like for the longest time I was credible enough. Like, I didn't want to be a guy who was saying, I'm nine months clean. I got to figure it out. Let me go share my story. And I'm not saying that people at that point don't have a story to share because it's extremely difficult to get to nine months, to 30 days, to six Well, but I mean, the courage that's going along with all that. You're dealing with a lot of emotions besides courage, too. You're showing your strength again as well. So I think you're right. You know, that, yeah. that level of confidence isn't there. Yeah. It took me like three and a half, four years to get out there and say, like, I'm ready to share. And it wasn't like I sought it out. You know, I did a lot of praying. Eventually, some guy just came to me and said, hey, someone gave me your name, said you might be interested in sharing a story about addiction. So I'm like, yeah, no idea what I was going to say. I came up with this speech. And then after giving a couple, people would come up to me and they'd say, hey, you know, my son is going through this. What's your advice? 
I wouldn't know what to give because I was the one going through it and they're the ones seeing someone suffer from it. So I was like, I don't exactly know. My mom would be a better person to ask than me in that situation. But here's what you can do. You can love them and try and get them help. And I know these places are good avenues to get help. And then one time a a woman came to me and said that her son was 23 and she thought he was going to die if he didn't get help. So I gave her the number to a guy who actually sent him to a treatment center in Florida. She was like, I need him out of Pittsburgh. He's been everywhere in Pittsburgh. Like he needs to get away. So I helped him get to a place in Florida. Like three months later, I was going to talk at some event and the kid tapped me on the shoulder. And I didn't know it at the time, but he's like, hey man, I just want to say my name is John, we'll say. And my mom reached out to you and I just want to thank you. You saved my life. I'm three months clean or four months clean. Oh, wow. I was like, I need to do more. I need to do more of this. Like, think about it. If you go to a high school and there's a couple hundred kids or 500 kids, whatever it is, and one person finds something important in your message and decides to go this way instead of that way, look how many lives that touches. Like, for me, I went through this. It affected my four people in my house, my two brothers and my parents, my aunts and uncles. You know, that's 10 people. My grandmother, that's 11. My 15 cousins. And then all the friends and girlfriends or whoever else was around me at that time. So you affect a lot of people just by making a small change. And this is a difficult one because it's, it's, it's really like life or death. Um, you never know when you'll get that call that somebody didn't make it because they OD'd or whatever the case is. So that one kid coming up to me that one day, and, and I had given a handful of speeches at that time, pushed me forward to kind of do it more and stay involved in it. This is a fantastic story, Joey. I appreciate it. I want to ask you, because I asked all the people that come on, leave your mark. How would you want to be remembered or what would you want your mark to be left in this world? When people say your name, what do they think of Joey Del Sardo? (laughs) Um, I think, wow, that's, you know, that's a powerful question. It's obviously changed. If you would ask me 16 years ago, I would have said I would like to be remembered as this great athlete. And now I feel like my purpose of going through this was to help people, helping people battle with their struggles or overcome their struggles, whether it's addiction, whether it's something that they may just not feel comfortable with about themselves or, you know, whatever it is, just that guy helped people. Right on. Right on. I love it. Well, Paisan, you did one hey. hell of a job. It's good to know you're on the right path, too. And I appreciate it. This was really, really good to hear you and on this level, uh, going out of the, the light into the dark and back out into the light. A testimony is good, and it's great for people to hear. So this is, this is going to be really good. We want to stay in touch with you. Yeah. You know, find out if you're doing any sort of speaking or anything like that. Let me know because I want to make it available for people that listen to this, uh, have access to you and and what you're up to. Yeah. So I I appreciate it. Hopefully once the COVID times or whatever pass, I had a couple speeches that had to get canceled due to um, the stay at home order. So we'll see. Hopefully in the next few months or next year, we'll get we'll get a chance to do it. So great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Leave Your Mark today. Tune into our next episode of Leave Your Mark with Vince Cortez. Be blessed. You just left your mark. Thanks for listening. listening. Listen to more episodes on demand. Just click Leave Your Mark with Vince Cortez.